Welcome back to the second season of The Q-Files. In our first episode, we'll give you plenty of fascinating food for thought and more than a few human conundrums to chew upon. There are few stories that have captured the American imagination like the tragic and horrifying story of the Donner Party. These days, if anyone knows anything about it at all, most likely it is only these two things. It had something to do with California and, well, people ate each other. Both of these notions are correct, but the real story is much more compelling and complicated. And ultimately, this disturbing event has much to tell us about the very essence of who we are as human beings. It also reminds us that our own American dream holds within it countless unimaginable nightmares. In contemplating this story, we decided to host our very own Donner dinner party. The theme being scarcity, and the menu being foods that most people today would consider taboo. We wanted to fantasize just a bit about what the Donner Party themselves might have experienced and share this evening with you. So grab a glass, pull up a seat, and join us for our rather odd dinner feast. Ooh, like that sound. I like that sound. We know the Donners certainly didn't have champagne, but hey, we just had to celebrate the beginning of our brand new season. Let's have a toast to the second season, second season. of the Q-Files. Here we go. That's pretty good. That is good. That's pretty good. In case uh, you all can't see us, uh, we're having a little... Uh, <laughs> A little bubbly. Champagne. In the 1840s, the desire to go west had taken root in the minds of many Americans who lived east of the Mississippi. Overpopulation, diseases like cholera and typhoid, and a stunted economy had made many Americans desirous of a more profitable and pleasurable place to live. Lansford Hastings, a 27-year-old lawyer from Mount Vernon, Ohio, had dreams of his own Western empire. After immigrating to California in 1842, he saw the territory as a new independent republic that he might govern himself. In order for this to occur, it would require a monumental wave of immigration to California in order to wrest it from Mexico and place himself at its head. To encourage the would-be pioneers in 1845, he published a booklet entitled The Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California, and the publication saw an enormous popularity in the East. Not only did the booklet contain maps and guides, but also a brand new cutoff that would provide a much faster and more direct route. He even promised to lead the immigrant parties from Fort Bridger in the Oregon country through the cutoff himself. There was only one problem. Hastings hadn't ever actually seen the cutoff he was selling. One year later, in Springfield, Illinois, James Reed tucked a copy of Hastings' booklet into a saddlebag as he loaded up his wife, his mother-in-law, and his four children into their two-story covered wagon equipped with an iron stove, bunks, and cushioned seats in preparation for their trip to California. Their wagon was so large, it took eight oxen to pull. He brought with him the families of George and Jacob Donner. Reed and the Donners were extremely successful businessmen and respected city leaders. They seemingly had little reason to escape their very comfortable lives in Springfield. They had much, but they figured they could get more. 
much more. After some teary goodbyes on April 16, 1846, the Reed Donner Party started west with nine wagons in search of paradise. Ironically enough, on that same very day, Lansford Hastings set out eastward on horseback from California to actually check out firsthand the shortcut that now bore his name, Hastings Cutoff. The Reed Donner Party arrived in Independence, Missouri by the first week of May, actually ahead of schedule. There, they would stock up on food and supplies to face a four-month, 2,500-mile journey across plains, forests, mountains, rivers, and deserts. Every unique landscape that America could offer these new pioneers. Nearly 7,000 wagons would set out from Independence in 1846. All of them would make it to California by the time winter snows covered the Sierra Nevada mountains. All of them except the Donner Party. By June 27th, they had reached Fort Laramie in the territory we know now as Wyoming. There, James Reed ran into an old friend, a mountain man named James Kleiman. He emphatically warned Reed not to take the Hastings cutoff and to stay on the traditional path as it might well be impossible any other way, especially with wagons. Reed brushed him off saying, there's a Naya route and we shall take it. Why Reed was so adamant about taking this new and possibly very dangerous route, we will never know. But some 10 years before in 1835, French observer Alexis de Tocqueville wrote this. It is odd to watch with what feverish ardor the Americans pursue prosperity and how they are ever tormented by the shadowy suspicion that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. Americans cleave to the things of this world as if assured that they will never die. James Reed fit Tocqueville's description of an American to a T. Reed was further emboldened when on July 17th, the party received a note from Hastings himself promising to meet them at Fort Bridger, some 300 miles away, and take their party through the cutoff himself. The die was cast. So, on July 20th, the nine wagons of the Reed Donner Party turned left at the Little Sandy River, breaking from the rest of the wagon train, which veered right, continuing on the traditional Oregon Trail. They made good time and reached Fort Bridger in just a week, but Hastings wasn't there. He had already left to shepherd another party ahead of them. He had left word for them to follow anyway and assured them that the cutoff would save them 350 to 400 miles. Convinced they were making the right choice, Reed piloted the party on and they made good time for a week. And then another more troubling note from Hastings reached the party on August 31st. It said that the road ahead was impossible to traverse and that they should wait for him. They waited five days. He never came back. By himself, Reed took out by horseback through the rough forests and steep mountains and found Hastings along the route. Hastings refused to come back and help, but took Reed to a high plateau and showed him the route that would take them south of the Salt Lake and through the basin and ultimately across the Great Salt Desert. Hastings then sped off, leaving Reed no choice but to return and lead his party himself through the pass. There was no turning back now. And with that, they turned off the beaten path into the entangled wilderness. 
They had to hack through the thick forest trees to create a new trail and had to double-team the oxen to get up through the mountains. It took them eight days to go six miles. Exhausted and now frightened from their ordeal, they found themselves at the Wasatch River Basin of the Great Salt Lake on the exact route Hastings had shown Reed. And there, they found another note from Hastings, tattered from the desert winds. It would be his last note to them. He told them to continue through the Great Salt Desert, which should only take them two days and two nights of hard driving. They drew as much water from the lake as they could carry, and on August 30th, they started across the desert. By the third day, their water had run out, and many of their oxen, crazed from thirst, had bolted and could not be found. During the hot daytime, the moisture rose up from the salty earth, literally creating quicksand, which swallowed the wagons up to the top of their wheels. Many of the wagons had to be abandoned, including the Reed's opulent two-story coach. Many were on foot now, carrying what belongings they could, and most of the mothers carrying their children in their arms. The nighttime temperatures fell well below freezing, forcing them to cover themselves with their dogs to stay alive. Six days after entering the desert, they stumbled out, tormented by thirst and crazy with anguish. They recouped at a nearby stream and took an inventory of their provisions. They clearly did not have enough to last the rest of their journey. Two members of the party, William McCutcheson and Charles Stanton, went ahead in hopes of returning with food and supplies. The party, weakened and losing hope, continued on. On September 26th, they finally reached the Humboldt River and rejoined the traditional wagon trail westward. Hastings' cutoff had actually proven to be 125 miles longer than the traditional route and took them a month to traverse instead of a week. And they had lost almost everything. It was a disaster of epic proportions. Understandably, tensions were high and nerves were frayed. Trying to proceed up a hill, two wagons got entangled and one of their drivers, John Snyder, started beating one of Reed's oxen with the heel of his whip. Reed told him to stop. Snyder cast a brutal whip lashing to the top of Reed's head and attempted to lash Reed's wife. As Snyder pulled his arm back to do it again, Reed stabbed him in the chest with his buck knife. Snyder staggered to the ground and died. The party was stunned. Reed was restrained while the party formed an assembly to decide his fate. They determined quickly that it was murder and that Reed should be hanged immediately. Reed's wife, Margaret, pleaded for mercy for her husband and their family. The assembly relented, but announced that instead Reed would be banished from the party. Reed, of course, vehemently disagreed, but realized he had little choice. The next morning, after helping to bury John Snyder, Reed set off alone on horseback towards California, leaving his family behind. Henceforth, the party would now be singularly and notoriously known as the Donner Party. Their situation did not get much better. On October 12th, as they inched toward the Sierra Nevada mountains, Paiute Indians killed 21 head of oxen with poison arrows, bringing the total of lost oxen to over 100. And by October 19th, their food was gone. They scrambled across and scoured the now lush countryside for anything to eat. Roasted crickets with pumpkin seeds, 
Oh my gosh. Now it really you, just looks like seeds. It, they do. The little brown ones yeah. are the crickets. Yeah. And, um, you know, we would eat these in a second if we were in the woods and had to eat oh, something no, besides yeah. each other. So. Are you ready? How ready. many do you put on? Well, I'm just going to get some crickets first without the pumpkin seeds. Okay. And there, it has a chili. Oh yeah, no, I lime uh, flavor to it. It's from, oh, you're just going to try it by itself. It's from Don Bogito. That's the name of the uh, company. Should we, should we cheers our crickets? Cheers. Roasted crickets. Oh. There's a cricket in a candle. <laughs> it looks like a moth on a candle. That's perfect. We'll just let it burn. That's our sacrificial uh, cricket. <laughs> Oh my god. Ready? Yeah. People should be eating insects. No, so I mean one of the the huge like things in the future is like cricket farms. It's like all protein. But when you eat them it's like it's like eating a potato chip where it's just crunchy and flavorful. It's crunchy and flavorful. Yeah. I could have that as a snack for every night. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, like... That, that's a whole spoonful. If you just gave someone this as, like, crunchy seasoning for the meal and didn't On say something, they wouldn't even have the, like, natural aversion. So, we passed the night so far with stellar colors. Eating crickets. I just really well, don't. I don't see crickets. the. I don't see all the pro. It's a problem with insects. I need to get caught up on the. the I'm eating, eating insects at all. It doesn't bother me at all. It's just like a crunchy little trail mix. Yeah. So that's what I was gonna say. I think something like this. very familiar and stuff mm -hmm. texturally but mm -hmm. when folks are eating like grubs or something but they're always usually toasted so That's if true. they're toasted or cooked they the texture is just like that to their great surprise on October 23rd the first relief group headed by Charles Stanton that had been sent out over a month before returned with mules, food, and two Miwok Native Americans named Louise and Salvador who would guide them over the mountains. The Native Americans assured them that they had at least a month until the snow would make the mountain pass impossible. The party breathed a huge sigh of relief and believed that the worst of their ordeal was over, thus deciding to pause their journey for five days to rest themselves and their remaining animals. Then, they continued on. But an axle on one of the Donner wagons snapped and George Donner severely cut his hand trying to repair it. The Donners urged the rest of the party to go on, promising they would catch up soon. On October 31st, the rest of the party reached the Truckee Lake, just 1,000 feet under the summit of the Sierra Nevadas and only 150 miles from the safety of Sutter's Fort which was just across the mountains and into California. They were almost there. They were jubilant. But yet, an eerie bright white halo could be seen gathering around the rising full moon as the cold dark night and 
above them. And so, it began to snow. Upon the mountain peak, nearly five feet had fallen by the next morning. After all they had overcome, after all they had endured, they had missed the mountain pass by one day. Meanwhile, the United States had gone to war against Mexico, and almost all able-bodied men had left the California territory to fight. James Reed, although half-dead, had successfully reached California and tried to form a rescue party. But there was simply no one left there who could assist him. There was no one coming for the Donner Party. The next morning, the pioneers at Truckee Lake made a last desperate attempt to climb the mountain, but as the snow did not relent, their mules and oxen fell headfirst into the slippery mountain rocks, many of them collapsing to never be revived. The two Native Americans, Luis and Salvador, went ahead trying to make their way through the mountain pass, but the trail had disappeared under the snow, and they too returned. The Truckee pioneers had no choice but to head back to the lake and start building their camp, having found some old dilapidated cabins to stay through the winter. And it snowed, and it snowed, and it snowed. The Donner Party had crept along, but they too could go no further. They set up camp at the Alder Creek site, some six miles east of the Truckee camp. There, Tamsin Donner, who could see that her husband George was growing weaker from the infection from the wound in his hand, gathered everything she could find to make a meal for her family. She cooked the last of the meat from the emaciated oxen that lay frozen outside their door and combined it with charred bones, twigs, bark, grass, and leaves to try and extend their meals. She would also boil leather shoes, shoelaces, and even the hides that they used to keep themselves warm to make something that resembled soup. Then they cooked the dogs, the same very animals that by their shared warmth had saved them during those cold desert nights. But at this moment, their shriveled stomachs could offer up no gift of merciful gratitude for their canine friends. The Truckee camp did no better. Between the two camps, there were 81 people, 25 men, 15 women, and 41 starving children, six being nursing infants. On December 15th, Bayless Williams became the first to die from starvation at the Truckee camp, which included the Reed family. Others weren't far behind. Something had to be done, so that next day, William Eddy, along with Salvador and Luis, organized a team that would try one more time to make it up the side of the mountain and seek relief for the entire party. They fashioned snowshoes out of the remnants of oxbows and rawhide. This brave company consisted of nine men, five women, and one boy, along with Luis and Salvador. They would call themselves the Forlorn Hope. That name would prove portentous. They left with six days starvation rations, just a little mule meat. It took them two days to reach the summit, and then the snow made it impossible to go on. There were now 20-foot snowdrifts, and at this point, they could not only reach the summit, but they couldn't even make their way back to their camps. By the ninth day out, they were hopelessly lost, high in the California mountains. They were stuck, and they were out of food. 
Some even wished to not go back. A member of the Forlorn Hope, Mary Graves, would say, What to do we did not know. Some of those who had children and families wished to go back, but the two Indians said they would go on. I told them I would go too. For to go back and hear the cries of hunger from my brothers and sisters was more than I could stand. I would go as far as I could, let the consequences be what they might. On Christmas Eve, it began to snow yet again. They were starving, and only hours from death. Then, and only then, did they consider the unimaginable. They decided to draw lots to see who would be killed, and then eaten. Patrick Dolan drew the longest slip, indicating that he would be the sacrifice. But in the end, the forlorn hope could not do it. They could not murder one of their own to save themselves. But by the next morning, Patrick Dolan and three others had died from exposure and starvation. The remaining members labeled the bodies to ensure that no one would be eating their kin. And then they carved the flesh from the arms and legs of Dolan, cut out his heart and liver, started a fire, and not only considered the unimaginable, but surrendered to it. It was Christmas Day. Only the two Native Americans, Luis and Salvador, refused the horrifying holiday accommodations. The greed and impatience of rich men. That very notion seems to be found in the dark, haunted underbelly of every American human tragedy that has ever befallen our nation. Join us next time on episode two of the Donner Dinner Party. So what we're gonna do first is, in the spirit of the Donner Party, yes, we have a little platter here of raw human. Raw human. Thank you, Black Market. <laughs> this show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files. And hey folks, if you enjoy the Q-Files, take a minute to leave a review. And if you can't leave a review, then tell a friend. Or share us on social media. It's much appreciated. <laughs>